Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, let me welcome um, not just our visitors, but so many of our children who are with us today, too. And we are delighted. Normally, you'd be out in class, but this is a special Sunday. And so I'm going to let you know in advance um, two things. Number one, I'm going to preach a shorter message today. So if you say, hey, Mom and Dad, I want to go back in there next time, just know that next time it'll be a lot longer, okay? (laughs) And I also want you to know that we don't always serve breakfast every morning, okay? So just know that. But for those children who are here, we're delighted that you're with us as well. And uh, if you're sitting next to a child who gets a little squirmish, um, just give God praise that kids, too, are able to hear the gospel and the Word of God, right? So we're glad they're here. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here, too. I want to I read a passage from Mark chapter 16, and that's going to be the text this morning. And then we're just going to take about 15 minutes or so and walk you through that passage. So will you stand with me in respect to the reading of the Word, and we'll, I'll read it in your presence. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And then they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Go ahead and be seated where you are there. Let me talk to you about three things this morning that we believe, that we believe when we read the Mark 16 story. And it has to do with three different elements, an empty tomb, an angel's testimony, and the human witness. So watch this. We believe something about the empty tomb that has tremendous application to us today. We believe something about the angel's testimony that you'll see in a second. And we believe something about the human witness, that is, when people begin to talk about the fact that they had seen the risen Christ. Now notice, first of all, for me, that at the end of chapter 4, we see that when the women come to the tomb, they come and they see that the stone has been rolled back and they acknowledge the stone is large, okay? So this is what we see. And one of the things I want you to understand is that it seemed like if I was the one who was telling this story and I was writing it, I would have had Christ show up right there at the tomb, okay? To say, I'm risen, you can see me. But that's not what happens. Mary Magdalene will see him face to face in John's account, but that's when she comes back to the tomb afterwards, still looking for the body. Not so here. They come and all they see is an empty tomb. And I was thinking about that for a little bit. Um, That actually has a message for us, and it goes like this. We believe in what we cannot see. The Christian believes in what he cannot see. Now, you can say, well, I only believe things if I can see it. No, you don't, okay? You ate breakfast this morning, probably over there. You ate things, you don't even know where we got that food from, okay? Right? Okay. 
And there's a really good chance, okay, it was safe, I'm not scaring you, all right? But there's a really good chance that you don't understand how your body fuels every single particle that goes down into your stomach and how you have energy. You probably don't understand all the dynamics of how the coffee that you got over there is gonna keep you awake right now, okay? We don't know these things, but we believe them, right? Every day, we believe in things we cannot see. But let me tell you, the Christian absolutely has to believe in what he cannot see. And that's why this post-resurrection appearances of Christ, it kind of feels like now you see him, now you don't, right? Through the whole gospel record, there he is, standing among them, eating with them. They see him falling asleep. They see him sleeping in the boat. They see him praying. He always seems to be there. But after the resurrection, he's there, he's gone. He's there, he's gone. As if God wants to say, do you really believe in what you cannot see? In fact, that's a message throughout the Bible, right? Look at Hebrews 11:1 1 for a moment. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, just for a moment, understand this. I love the words that are highlighted here. Assurance, that's something you're certain of. Hope, now I know hope sounds like something that's uncertain. That's the, uh, the American understanding of hope. It's not the New Testament understanding of hope. Hope was always a certainty. If you're a 76ers fan, you know something like this. Finish the sentence for me. For years we've been told, hope in the process, right? That is, we're gonna put together a team that will one day win. That is so uncertain, okay? (laughs) Not the biblical hope, never. The biblical hope is always about something that is coming, but it's sure and certain. So faith, how you believe, is something that is sure of things that are coming that you're certain about, and I love this, the conviction of things not seen. Conviction doesn't sound like opinion, it doesn't sound like a possibility, it sounds like a purposeful belief that says, this is my conviction, I'm holding to it. The the truth of the Christian message is this, that you and I are asked to believe in what we cannot see. But here's the truth. There is ample evidence in what we can see. And maybe another way to say this is those women who came to the tomb and the disciples as they come to the tomb, even without seeing the risen Christ in person, there was sufficient evidence for them to believe. And the gospel record records that for us, and I I just want to unpack some of that for you. In fact, um, years ago I was reading a Josh McDowell book in which he talked about the resurrection, and he pointed out something I'd never noticed before, how the different gospel writers talk about the stone in front of the tomb differently. And so, I just want to take you back, because if you're maybe thinking, well, maybe this is how it was, I want to just paint for you how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saw that stone, okay? So, imagine momentarily, here's the stone, okay? This is the uh, stone in, in that time. It, it, by the way, it, it, didn't have an, it didn't have an electric guitar in front of it, okay? I'm just going to say that, okay? But here's the stone, all right? So, I want you to imagine, this is, the, this is the image of the stone. This is probably going to weigh two tons, probably something like this. In the gospel record, Matthew tells us that he uses the Greek word, um, he uses the Greek word kaleo to describe the fact that the stone was rolled against the entrance of this tomb. Now, now for just a moment, I got to take you out of Eglinton Cemetery and all the places that are here and explain to you the biblical, how it worked in biblical times. 
In biblical times, they would carve caves, uh, fine caves, in the side of the mountain, and it would become a family tomb. Now, what that meant is that your body was placed, when you died, your body was placed in there, but guess what? When Uncle Albert died a few years later, your body that had now decayed, the bones were pushed off into what they call a bone box, okay? And so Uncle Albert was then placed in the tomb. And then when Uncle Albert's body decayed, his bones were pushed in a bone box because there was just no way to remember and bury people because they just did not have the funds to do that. So this stone probably represented some type of family tomb. Therefore, Jesus only needed it for three days, so it didn't matter, okay? But here's the point. That's where he would be placed. And when they bought spices, they weren't buying them to embalm. There was no embalming. They were buying the spices to cover up the stench of the body that was going to decay. They didn't do it the way the Egyptians did it. They did it a different way. And so they would put those spices in the tomb, wrap them in the body. So that's why the women came. This stone, therefore, was on a bit of an incline. It would have been rolled down and kind of, therefore, locked in place. Matthew says it was Kuleo. It was moved against, rolled against the doorway. Mark 16, 3 says it was rolled away, and he adds a prefix on the front of it, anakaleo, which means it was moved up an incline. Now, if you just read Matthew and Mark, you would assume somebody pushed the stone back up the incline and stuck the wedge underneath it, so now the door is open. But Luke tells you something else. Luke uses a different prefix, apakaleo, to mean that it was actually rolled up an incline a great distance away. It wasn't in its position. Luke recognizes it as being further away than that. You ready for this? John doesn't use the word kaleo at all. He uses a different Greek word, the word aero, to speak of the fact that it was picked up and carried away. Okay, now just for a moment, think about this. John is the one witness who comes to the tomb. He comes racing to the tomb with Peter. John, the writer of the Gospel of John, sees this image, and he forever remembers it. That the stone just wasn't pulled away from the door, the stone just wasn't rolled up an incline away from the door, but the stone literally looked like someone had picked it up and carried it away. Okay. Now, I have a friend who has a backhoe. He could manage that, okay? But backhoes were in short supply in the first century, okay? This is a two-and-a-half to four-ton stone. This is massive. Someone carries it away from the tomb entrance. If you had come, you would have said, what just happened? It's sunrise. How did the stone get from there to there? And the tomb is open. In fact, there's another eyewitness testimony there that's significant. It's the women. Women were not thought of in first century times as they are today. They were deemed in some way as lesser. I'm glad that that perspective is changing. But here's what I want you to see. Women were the first to the tomb in every single gospel account. If you were making up this story in the first century, you do not put women at the tomb. You put men at the tomb because, as one writer says, the women were the first to the tomb, so it is in all the gospels. This was almost certainly because they alone had remained near the cross and come to the tomb as soon as possible after the Sabbath. By the way, I think it's also because women tend to be drawn more spiritually than men do, and I'm a man, so I can say that, right? But the point is, is that the women never left the cross, and now they're coming back to the tomb. But here's what the writer goes on to say. Inasmuch as the testimony of women was not even accepted in Jewish courts, and because Greco-Roman society also offered them a lowly place, the early church would have never invented this story. It's totally backwards. 
They wouldn't have put the women there. They'd have put men there so men could say, you know, I'm a worthy testimony. That's not how it was in biblical times. This writer says, on the basic of historicity of the account, there are no questions. And the story about the women is strong evidence of historicity of the resurrection itself. If you had only looked at what was there, you would have understood the story was telling you Christ was risen. Here's the second idea, an angel's testimony. We find that starting at verse 5. We believe in what is supernatural. Okay, now just for a moment, let me, I always got to qualify this in the world in which I live. Um, you might think that paranormal and supernatural are the same things because that's how, the, that's how the movies show it to you. They're not at all the same things, okay? Whatever you make of paranormal activity, whether it's there or whether it's not, it, it's not how the Bible describes supernatural. Supernatural is God intervening into the way that we see things done in the natural ways, and God does something that makes it clearly a supernatural event like an angel in the tomb, okay? That's a supernatural event. By the way, the miracles that God does often sometimes are just things that normally would happen. What makes them miracles is that God appoints a time in which they happen. Like, think about this. There have been times where locusts have been a plague to a nation and wiped something out. There have been times where frogs have been a plague to a nation and wiped something out. There have been times where brimstone has fallen from heaven, uh, from where hail has fallen from heaven and wiped something out. But when Moses says it's going to happen and then it happens on a time frame, okay, that's a supernatural event. Are you with me? So there's supernatural events that we believe. Someone says, I can't believe in it because I only believe in natural events. Okay, well, then one day you'll discover that there is a God, and yes, he does supernatural events. Okay. But here's the point. Look at it in the text. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man. Uh, the other gospels reflect that this isn't just a young man. It looks like a young man to them, but it's an angel. Sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. It's a supernatural event. By the way, let me just show you what we do today when we don't see with regularity those kinds of supernatural events. I mean, we all have to admit, we see God work at times, right? But we may not see them quite like they occurred in the Bible. I want to show you what Peter did with that, okay? In 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, this is what we read. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, listen, if someone tells you, that's just a make-up story, it's just a myth, it's a fable, say, no, 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 that's not how we came to it. We did not follow cleverly devised fables or myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, Peter says, listen, I was there. And then he tells you where he was, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is referencing the transfiguration, okay? Let me tell you, if you're not familiar with that, that is a supernatural event. Because Jesus, for just a moment, they see him in all of his deity. His clothes go white, everything goes white, and they say, that's not how Jesus looked when he came up on the mountain, okay? But there's something else that happens. Uh, Moses shows up, and Elijah shows up. Now, just let me put that in biblical history for you. Moses died 1,500 years earlier. Elijah died 800 years earlier. Okay? This is a supernatural event. Okay? When someone who died 1,500 years ago shows up, and his buddy who died 800 years ago, he shows up too, 
and they're there with the person who now is glowing in glory, this is a supernatural event. What I want you to see is what Peter does with it, okay? He remembers it, and then he says, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter just said, I have the supernatural events, but I'm gonna tell you something. The Bible, the Bible is equal. In fact, it's even more fully confirmed than the supernatural event. Because I saw the supernatural event, but you didn't, but you can see the Bible. To which you would do well to pay attention, he says, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Literally, Peter says, the Holy Spirit inspired people to write the Bible. You can look at the Bible and read of supernatural events that are actual events. We believe. We believe in what is supernatural. Part of the Christian's testimony is we believe in what, is cannot, what we cannot see and we believe in what is supernatural. Let me give you one final one. We believe in what is deeply personal. We believe in what is deeply personal. Now, go back and look at the passage in Mark 16 again and I'll show it to you. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Stop right there for a second. Um, just imagine what happens when the women come back to the disciples and they say, we just saw an angel he said, um, he said that Christ is risen. Oh, and Peter, he wanted you to know that Christ is risen. Okay, just for a moment, feel the weight of that, okay? Peter's, if, if I was Peter, I'd be saying, uh, why did he call me out by name? Okay. Can I just be one of the guys today? Okay. Because the last thing Peter remembers is denying Christ, right? And probably being guilt-ridden for three days, understandably, brokenhearted that he wasn't nearly the man he thought he was when he ran and fled and cursed to prove that he was not one of Christ's disciples. He denied him not once, not twice, but three times. And now all of a sudden, the angel's saying, oh, by the way, uh, Peter, Jesus is looking for you, okay? I just want you to feel the weight of that personally. You say, Phil, I don't have to because I already feel guilt for something I did in my past. I feel the weight of the wrongdoing. I feel the weight of broken promises. I feel the weight of ways I've sinned against maybe my kids or my spouse or my neighbor. I feel that weight, okay? And that's why I say we believe in what is deeply personal. That God just didn't send his son to forgive everybody. He sent his son to forgive you specifically just like Peter. And I notice in that text that they fled, they trembled in astonishment. They were seized by just the angel and they didn't do what the angel told them to do. They told no one because they were afraid. You ever been afraid? You ever been, thank you, <laughs> okay? You ever, oh, I love having kids in here, okay? Because they're more honest than the adults, <laughs> all right? Okay, here's the thing. We have been afraid. This also is a deeply personal story because these individuals who run and flee will find that they can trust the one who is indeed risen. In fact, William Barclay captured it this way so wonderfully. By far the best proof of the resurrection is the existence of the Christian church Nothing else could have changed sad and despairing men and women into people radiant with joy and flaming with courage. 
The resurrection is the central fact of the whole Christian faith. Because we believe in the resurrection, certain things follow. He means by that, we should be different. We live in a world that's a mess. I won't deny that. There's wars and wars and rumors of wars. That's the world we live in. But the Christian has a different perspective because they are sure that the one who died for them is living for them and will one day come again for them. That's because our belief is deeply personal. Three things I want you to think about this morning. We believe in what we cannot see. We believe in what is supernatural. And we believe in what is deeply personal. Will you bow your heads with me? Maybe this morning you would say, Phil, I haven't thought about it that way. I thought maybe I could work my way to heaven, but the way you're describing it is that Christ came and he died, not for everybody else too, but just for me. That's true. He says, as many as believed in him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. This morning, right where you are, you could trust Christ. You could believe. Hopefully, if you've heard, you don't need mountain loads of evidence to come to that. You simply need to say, I believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and that he died on a cross in my place, and that his death paid the penalty for my sin, and that he rose again, proving himself. If that's the condition where you find yourself today, I just want to encourage you with your head bowed and your eyes closed, you can call out. You can say like the individual in Scripture who said, I do believe, help my unbelief, and the Spirit of God will help your unbelief. Whether you're an adult or whether you're a child, you can say, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to invite you right here, right now, just to commit your life to him. Maybe you could just follow along with me. If the, the words of this prayer are the words of your heart, then just say them with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And I know I need a savior. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe you rose again. I'm calling on you to save me. The Bible assures us that he will. Father, we are so thankful for this morning. We're thankful for what it means to us. We're thankful for the incredible testimony of disciples, all of whom would be martyred, but one. They had a great, deep conviction because they'd seen the risen Christ. Help us live in such a way that we do not seek to deny him in any way, but we give your son full credit and full glory for everything he does. And we're quick to acknowledge that we needed God's help even now, by his grace, only then can we live for him. So we thank you, Lord, for redeeming us, for saving us, and for giving us a hope after this life. In Jesus' name. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill. Hill.